right before we dive in, I, I want to ask you this, this, curious, if you've ever been in a situation where you don't really know something, but you feel like you were supposed to. You ever been in one of those where, where you're like, I feel like I'm supposed to have the answer to this, and I don't have the answer to this, and you're a little nervous because it's like one of those things where you go, I feel like I have been prepared for this my entire life, and I'm not, I'm not ready to actually do what I'm supposed to do or say the thing that I'm supposed to say. So you, you're afraid to look like a fool, so you just make stuff up. You just kind of act like you know what you were supposed to know, rather than just say, I honestly, I've gotten it wrong, I should be aware, and I'm not. Uh, two areas where this has happened in my own life are... Uh, these are minimal, I was going to say. There are bigger areas with more significance, but I'm too embarrassed to share them with you. So the two areas that I think of, one is seminary. Um, and in seminary, I, I, I went to, to seminary really not knowing a lot about the Bible. I went to, like, I, I went to learn more. I, didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't like, I got this thing licked. I still, like, when I was finishing up my, uh, my round of seminary at Dallas, I was trying to still become a public school teacher. Like, that was my end game. Like, I, I, was, I was taking tests to be a public school teacher. But it's funny because in seminary, people ask you questions, and you're, and you're not sure if, like, how you're even supposed to answer it. I, I mean, I honestly, even recently I've had an interaction with somebody where they asked me a question about, like, so how, what's your view on, like, uh, typology? And I was like, I don't, mm, well, what do you mean? <laughs> and, and I'm just kind of, like, stumble my way through it because I'm honestly sometimes still, I just go, I'm not really sure. This past week, I was teaching the, the perspectives lesson on history. That's why I wouldn't hear. I was teaching in Baton Rouge on the history of Protestant missions. And I had to confess to the class at the beginning, I'm really bad at history. Just so you know, I'm bad at this, but here we go. You have to listen to me for 55 minutes times two because those are the amount of sessions that you get. But you just, I remember just going, I don't know, I don't know. Am I, am I, am I Amil? Or am I covenant? Am I dispensational? What's my hermeneutic? Am I Arminian? Am I a Calvinist? What's Pelagianism? Do I like whole milk or soy milk? I, I, like, do these all go together? Like, like, does the type of milk that you drink determine the type of theology that you have? Because it seems like it does. And so, like, that was one where I just went, I don't, I mean, honestly, still, I started, I started seminary in uh, 2005, okay? It's 2022. There's still a whole lot of stuff I just act like I know. I just kind of go, I feel like an idiot, so I'm just going to go ahead and act like I know what's going on. The second area, maybe you can relate to this, Willie, uh, coaching youth sports. Coaching youth sports. I said, I'll, you know, this is the fall of 2020. I said, I'll coach a baseball team. I'll do it. If you go into my office, uh, the books I still have out, there's a lot of books on theology. And then there's like three books on coaching youth baseball. Literally staying up, reading like what? I mean, I sat with Nolan at a coffee shop. We sat like outside of Starbucks for an hour, an hour and a half, and I was like, "Explain to me everything I need to know about how to coach nine-year-olds." And so, when someone shows up who actually knows what they're talking about, you do feel a little better. It's really hard. It is hard for us to admit when we don't know things. It is harder for us to admit we don't know things when we feel like we should. When we feel like we should. This is like when you're in, in community group and somebody asks you a question and it's like a, you feel like it, you're, you're already supposed to know the answer, but you don't. And you're like, and what Bible book do we see that in? And you're like, 
I don't know what Bible book we see that in. Why don't you tell, like, you tell me what Bible book that's in, and I'll tell you if you're right, right? Because we don't, we don't know what we're doing. And so, like, I remember sometimes I sit across from people, and, they, and their, their brain is so full of Bible knowledge, they start sharing it with me. They're like, well, you probably read this before. And I'm like, well, thank you for the flattery, but I don't know if I have. Um, hard to say I'm not certain. Hard to say I don't know. I haven't read that. I'm not sure. I don't have the answer to that. We want to be certain. So what can happen is either in humility we say, we, we admit we don't know something and we seek to understand it rightly. Or in pride, we just double down in our ignorance. A lot of us do that, especially husbands when they're trying to fix things. I'm going to get it done. You don't have to call anybody. I can fix this. I know what's going on. I know the problem. Meanwhile, like you have your phone out and you're watching YouTube videos where it's like, how to change a light switch. You're like, hmm, okay. Does the black go to the white one or the white one go to the black one? Or do you find the same color? I don't know. Is this a three-way switch? What's a three-way? You know, and you really don't know, but you're just acting like you do. And you have the scars to show it. But imagine for a moment that you are a religious leader in the first century who is an expert in the scriptures. And someone claiming, or others are claiming, or the Messiah is here. And you have studied the scriptures backwards and forwards. You know all the answers. You're the one in the Bible study that is saying, hey, and you know what this says in this verse in this place. You have more Bible memorized than anybody else. You've forgotten more than I'll ever know. You're that person, and the Messiah's come. But it's not squaring up with how you would expect the Messiah to act. Right? That, like, he's doing things that you wouldn't have anticipated and living in ways that you wouldn't have thought. And, and you're, really not, you're really not sure what's going on. Right? You have the same two options. You either humbly confess your lack of awareness and maybe even you're, you, you're misjudging of the Messiah. Or you double down in your ignorance. And you just go, we can't be wrong. I can't be wrong. And so you must be wrong. Well, we're getting into a spot in John. You see this in 5. John 6 really is like the height of Jesus' ministry. And what I mean by that is it's the most popular he's going to be is in John chapter 6. And then he gets the bread of life discourse. And he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everybody's like, we out. We don't understand. Not a cannibal. Don't want to have anything to do with this. And everyone leaves. The thousands upon thousands of people who thought he was great when he was feeding them food out there on the mountainside... They all bolt. They liked it when he was giving them a free lunch, but once he starts talking about eating flesh and drinking blood and finding life in him, they go away. Well, we see in John 5, Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders, when it only ratchets up their hatred of him because they're doubling down in their ignorance. They're choosing only to, to understand the world that they have created rather than the world that God had created. And what we're going to see today is how they live in darkness. How they live in darkness. And, and, and really why they stay there. Why they stay in that darkness. And even though I would assume many people in this room, because I've talked to you and we've discussed, I, 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 know, I know many of you in this room follow Jesus. I find it still, as we look at this passage, incredibly beneficial for us to recognize what pride and arrogance can do when encountering the Messiah. Because Jesus is about to rebuke these leaders for the ways that they don't see him. The ways that they 
they really choose not to see him. And he brings them really strong words. And it follows the passage, John 5, 19-47, really breaks down in, in two movements. And so what we see in, in movement one is that they reject Jesus as the one sent from the Father. They don't recognize the relationship between the Father and the Son. And that's one reason that they're not listening. And then secondly, they reject the many witnesses who or that have testified about Jesus. So they're, they're neglecting the right understanding of Jesus as the Son sent from the Father, and they don't listen to the witnesses about Jesus. Those are the two big rebukes that he gives them as to why they are not responding to who he is. We see that first, how does those in darkness wander? Those in darkness reject Jesus as the Son sent from the Father. This is in verses 19 through 30. Jesus is about to speak about all the ways he is united to his heavenly Father. And if you knew this, if you saw this, and you would know who I am. That's what he's, he's going to do. <clears throat> so all the ways that he is united with his heavenly Father. I, I say it in a few ways. You could find maybe one more way. I was sending, sent this outline to a friend of mine. He's like, well, when, you know, our elder did it. He did these ways. I was like, I know. It's an art and a science. We're trying to figure out how many ways are there. Jesus doesn't go, here are the, all the ways you've rejected. But they reject Jesus as the Son sent from the Father. And what we see is that Jesus is one who is united with the Father in action. They do the same things. Okay? You see that in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, them are the religious leaders who have rejected him and want to kill him, who are mad that he healed on the Sabbath. That's where we are in context. Jesus is the Son sent from the Father, and he's united with the Father in action. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but he only does, only, but he sees what the Father's doing, for whatever the Father does... The Son does likewise. This shows that in God, now the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Spirit does have many references in the Gospel of John, but a lot of Jesus' condemnation is about missing the Father and the Son and the relationship that they have. The Spirit is there too. He is there as a part of the Godhead in the Gospel of John, but Jesus is talking about his relationship with the Father. Now, this is already a big deal. Remember, they get mad at Jesus for saying that he is the Son of God because they're recognizing that this actually makes him equal with God. Why would it make it equal with God to say that you're a son of God? Well, humans make humans, right? Like, you know, the, 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 like my sons, I have three sons, sons of Hans. That's who they are. Um, their last name would be Hansen, right? You know, you could do that in like, if you ever watch like CrossFit things, all the people have these like daughter and son last names. Hansen. Those are my sons, and you know, oh, that means you, they belong to you, but also, what does it mean? They're also human. I don't call a pet cat my son. I don't, I don't I like, like, so to say, Jesus say, the, he is my father, I'm his son. He's speaking not just relationship of the, for us to understand between father and son, but speaking of, of kind. He is a, a kind of person. <laughs> Who is God? I only do what my father's doing. I only do what my father does. The son only does what the father's doing. And all of that he's saying, I act, and you see the father when you see me. And so when you see that, you see God. We've said this before. If you, want to, if you want to understand God, you have to look at Jesus. And Jesus is saying to these men who are listening, 
if you understood God, you would be responding to me. I only do what the Father shows me. United in action. But not just united in action, united in love. Verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. Not everyone's sure what the greater works will be. I think resurrection certainly is a part of it. The resurrection of Jesus certainly a part of the greater works that are done. Resurrection spoken of later in the passage. That the dead will hear the voice of God. And so greater works will be done than healing a man on a Sabbath. There's going to be the feeding of 5,000 in the next chapter. But I think really it's speaking about the giving of life. The resurrecting of people. Greater works will be done. And I do these things. They're united in action. They're united in love. The Father loves the Son. Shows all things to him. There is nothing withheld. Remember earlier in John we read that, that the Son has the Spirit without, you know, without any hindrance. Without, you know, in full measure. Or as prophets might have been seen in the Old Testament to have a portion of God's Spirit. Some measure of God's Spirit. The Son has... God's spirit in full measure. Why? Because he's fully God. One trusted, or one united, the Father in love. Now, now, what does that unification mean when it comes to salvation and resurrection? Well, it means he's one and united with the Father in giving life. That the Son gives life. Because the Father gives life. This is 21 through 30. Not all of 21 through 30, but look at 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So Jesus is a life giver. As the Father raises the dead, the Son gives life. Verse 24. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So then again, the giving of life. The giving of life. John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You're going to see in John multiple statements about eternal life. Eternal life. Life forever. And it all has to do with receiving the son. Receiving the Son. And what does it mean to receive the Son? It means you take Him as He is. You recognize Him for who He is. Not how you would view Him to be. Not how you would like Him to be. Not what might be nice or convenient or kind or safe or tame. But you receive Him as He is. The Son sent from the Father... To die for your sins. To rise on the third day. To give life. Whoever receives, hears the word, believes, will have eternal life. And then he speaks of resurrection in 25 through 30. Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here where the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, does this mean resurrection? If you read in Matthew, there's this odd resurrection that happens at Jesus' resurrection. Uh, that, you know, every, anybody who reads Matthew all the way through, it might, have to, it might take you like the tenth time. But when you read through it, you're like, wait a minute. You have this moment when you read Matthew, you go, wait a minute. Like, like, 
there are other people who rose for a second, and then they were like, see you guys later. Like, did they go back into their tombs when it was done? Like, what happened there? Because there's this kind of brief momentary resurrection that you see in the Gospel of Matthew that's nowhere else. And Matthew just writes about it just like, like, like he's writing about the weather. He's like, oh, yeah, and then this happened, and this happened, and they came out of their tombs, and they stayed for a while. Like, that's what you read. Well, what kind of life are we talking about here in, in John 5, 25, 26? An hour is coming, and now is here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Does that mean we're only looking at what's to come? Are we only looking at that Matthew resurrection? Are we only looking at the resurrection of Jesus? Are we looking at the future resurrection that comes when the Lord returns? What are we talking about here? John has, we've talked about this phrase, the realized eschatology, where it means that a lot of like, he talks about things that will happen that kind of are happening even now. What does this mean? What does this mean? Well, I think in classic John fashion, where he likes to use words where you go, wait a minute, what do you, what do you mean by that? Like you'll see this uh, in a few weeks where he's walking on the, on the water and he says, uh, it's in Greek, it's ego eimi, which sounds like a lego my ego, but ego eimi, um, which just means uh, it is I, that's how your passages often translate it, it is I, but also means I am. Just also means I am. And John just does this thing where he, he, he sometimes just li- he leaves you sure of who Jesus is, but also is totally fine with you going, well, who's rising? When are they rising? I do think all who hear the voice of God, who understand the gospel message, upon belief, are transformed from death to life. And so all who hear will live. All who hear will live. That is not just a future promise. That is a current reality. You respond to the gospel. You live. You have life. That's what John wants. He wants you to have life in his name. That life comes from God. And so the Father and the Son are united in giving salvation. This is about giving life, but also resurrection, because you do see that in verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so, again, you see John talking about, how do I have life now? Oh, and there's something coming. Where all are going to be brought to life or to death, to judgment. All. And that judgment comes because the ability, the the honor has been given to the Lord. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is really important to recognize that Jesus is acting in concert with the Father. The Father and the Son act together because if, if those wills were separated, those wills were separated in the Godhead, then you don't know who's acting. 
You don't know what's going on. And so, so the unity of the will of the Father, the unity of the will of the Son together, I only do what the Father's doing. I do not act on my own accord, which also, just think about it right there in the context, what happened? He healed on the Sabbath. Now, what can, that makes me a little uncomfortable if I'm a religious leader, because now I'm getting mad. Look at this. Now I'm getting mad at Jesus for doing something he's not supposed to do, but he's telling me that he only does what the Father tells him to do. So if I go all the way with him in this, then what do I have to recognize? That God is permitting something that I've never permitted. I mean, these religious leaders have painted themselves into a corner. If he really is this person, then what just happened is okay. Which then means the way I've taught it is wrong. The way that I've communicated it is wrong. The expectation that I have placed on people is wrong. And remember how you have those two options? Humble yourself or double down? What happens? Double down. Double down. And it only increases. Like, like, the, like the intensity only ratchets up. We see that he's united in the giving of life. We see that he has the ability to judge and, and give or receive honor. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent them, sent him. And so this is becoming, really, I mean, it's becoming a quagmire of religious leadership to go, you're left with a decision. This is the thing with Jesus, is anyone who encounters Jesus is left with a decision to make. He either is who he says he is, or he's not. But it's getting hot in that kitchen. They're running out of good reasons to reject Jesus. They don't have them. Running out of, of, of I, what, what, what do we do now? He says he's united with the Father. He only does what the Father's doing. The Father loves him. Anyone who honors him honors the Father. Anyone who does not honor him does not honor the Father. So we have a problem. You have a problem too. In how we respond to Jesus. How we submit to his authority. Obey what he, what he says. Trust in him. We have the same problem. We don't have the, I'm not a religious leader, uh, get out of jail free card. Because everyone in this room, in, in some way, has an impression of Jesus. At any age, any time, anyone who can, anybody has that impression of Jesus in this room. We are without excuse. Will we humbly surrender to him? Or do we, in our pride and arrogance, double down and reject him? Because there's no way he could be all those things. Or, even more dangerous, even more dangerous, I would say, is, is you, you really do recognize who he is. But it will require such undoing in your head and in your heart that you're unwilling. You say, if I follow, that means 
that everything I have hoped for myself, everything I had dreamed, and the path that I have been on is not under my control. I'm giving it all over. Yep, you are. Well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. So rather than humbly accept who Jesus is, they, they, they scoff at him as lesser than God. As lesser than God. They go, there's no way he can be this person. There's no way that he can be God. We, we, we can't accept that. This is how God would act. This is what God would do. God would not heal on the Sabbath. And I mean, can you hear how insane even that is? I mean, it's what would be similar for, for us in our world? Like, like, like giving a, a woman in labor a speeding ticket for trying to get to the hospital faster. Well, I'm sorry. The speed limit is what the speed limit is. And you were breaking it. And so I'm sorry you're giving birth right now. But I just need you to sign right here. I mean, it's, in, it's insane in our heads to think this is how this might go. <clears throat> but the entire system that has been set up on what it means to follow God and what it means to honor God and what it means to listen to God, it's there. <clears throat> that whole system is there. And Jesus, in his obeying his Father, listening to his Father, working in concert with his Father, and all those things, he is disrupting what was understood as being right. And it's really hard. <clears throat> it's really hard. I have friends, um, and, and I'm probably one of these too, but friends who have grown up in more legalistic circles. Maybe that's you too. Maybe you've grown up in a, in a legalistic church background where like, you have to dress a certain way, and you have to talk a certain way, and you have to read a certain kind of Bible, and you have to, like, everything's just kind of there. And even though you recognize cognitively that you are free from those things, that, like, that's not actually not faithfulness, <clears throat> there still is, can be this difficulty to embrace it. Because it, it still feels right. It still feels right. I remember talking with a, a, friend, of, a friend of ours, and, and, and she had said, it's still sometimes hard for me to see people act a certain way in church or talk a certain way. Or, or like, like it, just, it doesn't feel right because I had grown up for years and years viewing church as X and life in Christ like this. And when I see people not doing that, there's still this part of my flesh that feels like it's wrong to do that. Now, how do we recognize Jesus as a lesser God? Well, I think one is we're unable to believe his claims. We hear what he says as advice, not authority. We go, Jesus, when I read, when I read the scriptures, I'm getting good ideas. And I'm going to put them into the bag of good ideas that I have. And I will draw out from those the things that I need at different times. And so if I'm struggling, I might talk to a friend or I might pull out a Bible verse on struggling. And we don't actually read the scriptures as the authoritative, life-giving 
word or words of God for us to understand the Savior better and walk with him. We just kind of take it and lump it in with the rest. We just kind of diminish who he is. In doing that, we diminish who he is. He's not that person. He hasn't made those claims. He can't do those things. So we lump him in with others, or, or we, kind of, we, we have this, this syncretistic faith system that includes a little bit of idea from this faith, a little bit of idea from this faith, a little bit of self-help, and we put that all together, and we say, this is, this is how I get through the day. So you get like a verse of the day email, and you get a quote of the day email. Right? So you're kind of you're getting your life from Winston Churchill and Proverbs, right? Like, like, like whatever, whatever you go, man, this is great, you know? And, like, and then you pass along the Churchill quote because that seems to feel more true in the moment. And you just kind of treat what's in the scriptures as, well, I don't really understand what that is. Or I'm not sure. And when we do that, we don't recognize the authority of Jesus. And we treat other people or other things or other systems of belief as more authoritative we are diminishing Jesus as a lesser than God. Now, there's this thing I do in my house, and, and, and dads know this, where I go, hey! And they, they know. The, the little bit of a decibel increase. Stop! Mm. Right? Dad speaking. And honestly, we don't carry that, I, I will say awe. I don't want to say fear. Maybe my kids fear me. I don't think they do. I'm not that scary. But what I want to say is we don't read the word as authoritative, as revealing to us Jesus. We don't hear in it something that we must obey, as we must follow. We listen to it as, as, as kind advice from older people who lived before us. And, and that sometimes is good, and sometimes they're out to lunch. And we don't need that, those passages. So I think we do the same thing. We don't recognize Jesus' authority as God. We don't take him seriously. We don't take him seriously. Secondly, that second way that they reject him, those in darkness reject him, is they reject the witnesses that proclaim Christ. Now, in verses 31 through 47, Jesus is going to go through a long list of ways that others have testified about him. Remember, John uses that idea of witness, or to uh, witness as a verb, or witness as a noun. That idea, martureo, or martyr, you ever heard that phrase, martyr? Kind of come to the idea of the one who witnesses. Now, now what we have here in John is he uses that verb or noun, that idea of witness or testify, a lot. I, th- I, think, I can't remember the count. I think it's over 60 times John uses that idea of witness or testify, but either as a verb or a noun. And he's about to speak to all the ways they should have understood who he was based upon the people who have testified about it. Now, if, if like Abram, my son in the back, if Abram says something to you about me, My guess is, because you're nice people, you would believe him. My guess is. You might not. I mean, you know. But let's just assume you do. Like, we, we, we believe sometimes what other people say about one another very quickly. 
But Jesus is about to line out significant witnesses. And he's saying to these leaders, you have not heard a one of them. Here's the first witness, the witness of the Father. Now, I say the Father. Some might say John the Baptist. I'm going to say the Father for a reason because he's about to get to John the Baptist. If I alone bear witness about myself, verse 31, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that that testimony that he bears about me is true. That could be John the Baptist. He's going to go right into John the Baptist. It could also be the voice from the baptism. Remember when Jesus was baptized, and then as he came out of the water, there was a voice, and it said, this is my son. That voice testifying about who Jesus was, because Jesus was just talking about his relationship between the Father and the Son, I do think that lends a little bit of weight to the idea that the one who, there is one who testifies about me, and the testimony he bears about me is true. When the Father says, this is my Son, whom I love, right? Like, like this is my Son. So could it be John the Baptist? Yes, it could be John the Baptist. Uh, but that testimony at the beginning of Jesus' ministry of the Father testifying about the Son, even though that's not in the Gospel of John in the way that, that we, we know it, that, that uh, I was, I, who was it, Carson, were saying, very, very likely that that testimony of the Father toward the Son was known. That the voice, that people would be aware of that testimony that the Father gave. So I think it's the, the, the witness of the Father. Is, if it's the witness of John the Baptist, okay. We're about to get to the witness of John the Baptist, though, in 33 through 35. So I'm going to say that's the second witness. You sent John. He has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, John, was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a little while in his light. This just means you came, you came to the revival and then you left. You left the same. You were willing to enjoy it for a little while. You saw what was going on, a little excited. And then you left. Why? Why would you leave? Well, John was saying some things about a, a baptism of repentance. He was pointing to a Messiah and so it makes sense that, if, hey, if you, don't, you, don't, you can't like only part of John. If you're going with John, you go with all he's saying. And he was saying some stuff about Jesus the Messiah they were probably not willing to hear. So John came into the world. He testified. He was a burning and shining lamp, shining brightly as a testimony to Christ. But they were only interested for a little while. So the witness of the Father, the witness of John the Baptist, there's also a witness of Christ's works, the things that he's done. Now, remember this, and I saw this, I think, even this week, that, that in John, there are many signs that Jesus does. <clears throat> and the sign exists in a sense that you see through it to who he is. You don't marvel at the sign. You marvel at the Savior. Okay? But in the Gospel of John, what we often see, and we'll see it again in the feeding of the 5,000, is people marvel at the sign. This is the guy that gave us bread. This is the guy that gave us fish. Do it again. Do it again. And not only that, but they even say to him, well, what Moses gave us was, was better because it was for 40 years. I mean, that's, like, like that, that, that's what they bring his way. Moses, you did this once. You did this one time. One meal. 
Moses gave us 40 years of this stuff. You're going to have to up your game if we think you are who you are. That's really, like, that's the response that they have to him. And Jesus is going to flip it, and he's going to say, it was, it was my father, not Moses, FYI. And, I mean, there's also this whole thing throughout John, which is if you're not going to believe unless you have a sign. So Jesus does signs, but the signs point to him. They don't just point to how cool he is. Like we talked about the, the, the sleight of hand magician, the guy. I love those people. I was in college buy, at Magic Masters, buying magic tricks, making things float, and using all this, like trying my best. I'm a hack of a magician, but I can fool my kids. But that's where they become. Hey, Jesus, do another trick. Do another thing, right? Like move the, move the curtain and then, oh, more bread's there, right? Like that, that's how they were looking at him. And so he goes, I have works. The testimony that I have is greater than just what John said, verse 36. The works the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, his voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not know his word abiding in you. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Now he's going to take this idea, right? You look at my works, you don't receive my works. You don't receive what was spoken about me. You don't receive what John the Baptist has said. You don't receive the works that I do. And then thirdly, or fourthly, he's going to say, you don't receive what has been said in the past. What the scriptures have spoken. The witness of the scriptures. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they... That bear witness about me. Yet you, and I mean, you just circle that word. Yet you refuse. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. I don't think we recognize just how antagonistic people are to the gospel message. You refuse. To come to me that you may have life. That is a serious rebuke. And I'll say this. Even, even, even in our sanctification, our walking out of life with the Lord, that, he, that we become more like him even as we grow in him, <clears throat> there are probably even areas in your life right now where you refuse. You refuse to listen to what the Lord has said about it. You're just head in the sand, want to have nothing to do with it. You refuse. That pride and that arrogance can be in every one of us. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. <clears throat> he continues in verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. What does that mean? It means you've set your hope on works of the law to accomplish for you satisfaction with God. You've set your hope on Moses, his system, the laws and following them. Now remember the anger, anger and healing on the Sabbath. You live this way. You've set your hope on that. But if you believed Moses... You would believe me, for he wrote of me. 
<clears throat> but if you won't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, I know I'm speaking in this room largely to Christians. I understand that. We're in the Bible Belt. We've been to church forever. Got decades of church life. You've heard more sermons. You know, you've heard more of my sermons than you probably even wish to. I get it. I get it. <clears throat> if you've done our reading plans with us over the past few years, you've read the Bible at least one time through. You're working on two times through. You've probably been in Bible studies. You probably have podcasts. We've gone through James, Galatians. Uh, we've gone kind of chronologically through the Bible. We've done a lot of stuff. And you know what? That warning, that challenge Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them, the words, the constructs, in them there's life, but they testify about me. That's the challenge. Is there are many who know the scriptures better than you do, better than I do. There are scholars who know it backwards and forwards. Backwards and forwards. Who refuse. Who refuse to recognize the authority of the Son. And I get nervous sometimes even for us. Drag racing down Ella. I get nervous even for us because we can fill our minds with Bible knowledge and not fill our hearts with the love of the Savior. We can argue theology better. We can come across sharper, more learned, able to articulate nuances of doctrine. And you can, you can defend all, all the things where, you know, in the seminary class where I'm like, I don't know what I am. I don't even know what that is. Or whatever Asianalist or whatever, like, you know, Indian. I, I don't know what those are. I'm not an ism or an ist. I'm not sure. And some people can throw down uh, heavier and harder and better, and they can better articulate it, and their hearts burn cold. Cold. Because the reading of the scriptures is an end unto themselves and not an opportunity to better understand the goodness of Jesus. Not a, better, not a better opportunity to marvel at his work, to humbly submit our, our crooked, weird lives to him and say, Lord, continue to grow me. Rather, we just kind of look at him as cool things to abide by sometimes, maybe some neat stories, good things to argue over, but not transform. And that's always a fear I have when I read that. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have life. I mean, we use the phrase search the scriptures here, don't we? We say, okay, search the scriptures, search it out. You know, figure it out. Be like a Berean. Be a good Berean. Search them out. Be sure everything's said. But if it doesn't grow your heart for the Savior, then what are you in it for? What are we trying to do? Trying to show off our Bible knowledge. Trying to win a Bible camp, Bible drill. I can do it. I know it. I can get it. And so it's hard to say, I, I want everyone in this room, everyone in this room, to be a more serious student of the Scriptures. I do. 
I want that for myself. I want that for you. I want you to read it. I want you to know it. I want you to memorize it. I want you to meditate on it. I want you to pray it. I want you to discuss it. I want you to be, I, I, I want that for everybody in this room. But there are so many times where you can just get into a theological debate about something just because you like to spar and your heart doesn't do a thing. The Lord transforms hearts. I have seen more uh, faithful, strong-charactered men and women with a simple love for God who will not be able to answer every bit of doctrine, who don't know all the books, all the authors, all the controversy, who have no idea what eternal functional subordination Ism is and why it matters for your view of Trinitarianism and why it's a little, uh, a little weird. Like they just go, I don't even know what that is. So, uh, like, you know, hyphenator or shortened as EFS. Like I don't even know why that matters. I just know that Jesus is Lord and he loves me. That's what I know. That's okay. If with every reading of every page, of every verse, of every idea, of every prayer, it's just a greater humility and recognition that God loves you and sent his son for you. I'm okay. I'm okay. Because if we search the scriptures and don't see the Savior, then we're missing why they even exist. And that was the rebuke Jesus gave to these leaders. You're hanging your hopes on living in works of the law, thinking that Moses is going to save you. Moses is going to condemn you. Because they testify about me. What do they do instead of humbly submitting themselves to God? They receive glory from man and seek earthly praises. Look at 43 and 44. I've come in my Father's name. You do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. If some random teacher shows up and starts teaching you, yeah, come on in. Give you the seat of honor. Jesus shows up, you have no interest. If another shows up, you do have interest. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You can't believe if you're only in it for your ego versus the blessing that comes from being united with God through Jesus Christ. And so where do we end with this idea that disbelief condemns us as living in darkness? Rejecting Jesus as the Son sent from the Father, rejecting the witnesses about Jesus. His Father has spoken. John the Baptist has spoken what his works have testified, what the scriptures testify, we can refuse rather than humbly submitting ourselves to the authority and good graces of our Savior who died for us. Truly coming to Jesus for everybody Anybody who places their faith in Jesus requires a humble response. 
I'm not talking about the intensity of the humility. I'm not going to be, well, are you a 9 out of 10 or an 8 out of 10 or a 7 out of 10 or a 3 out of 10? But the humility to go, I've gotten it wrong. I've been living for myself. I've been my own savior. I've rejected and refused to listen to what is true. Coming to Christ requires a humble response to what God has revealed in his son. It requires acceptance of what he has done is true. And walking in light then is available for all. All who trust in Christ. We aren't in darkness anymore if that's the case. We're in light. That's again that theme that you see throughout John of people who are in darkness or in light. And you see what darkness does or how it operates. It rejects Jesus. It refuses to listen to those who testify about him. It pursues its own ends, its own glory, its own fame at the expense of their soul rather than the humble bowing before a God and creator who came and gave himself for us. That's our Lord. And he is due all praise, all honor, all worship. He is worth it. Do we see him?